Thank you so much, Kevin and worship team, for leading us uh, to this place of worship in the, in the Word, in the Scriptures now. As I was uh, listening to us sing together, The Great I Am, uh, it occurred to me that uh, one of the things that the Scripture message today is about is, is about bringing into focus who Jesus really is. And historically, there is a whole group of theologians that are across a spectrum that want to separate the historical Jesus from the Christ, the anointed Son of God. And uh, the Bible, over and over and over again, especially the Gospels, try to bring that together for us as readers. The first century readers could see it more clearly. They understood the language and the imagery. They knew their Old Testaments better. But today, my prayer is that we will um, also bring the historical Jesus and the Christ Messiah together to see that he is indeed one and the same. Would you open your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6? Gospel of Mark is what we're going through this year, and, and uh, we're only about a third of the way there, I guess. Mark chapter 6, and uh, beginning with verse 30. And we're going to stand in a moment. If you don't want to stand... You're not obligated to. You're welcome to stay seated. But the rest of us, if you'd stand with me now as we listen to God's word read. Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 30. Listen to God's word. It says, The apostles gathered around Jesus, and they reported to him all they had done and taught. And then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come away with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them, and he ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. By this time it was late in the day, and so the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, That would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. And then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up into heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave it to them, to, to his disciples, to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, where, well, he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Now, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost, and they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. 
And then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. And when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. And as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Thank you. It's a word that's particularly used among uh, theological people, but it's a word that's used in any kind of an interpretation of ancient documents. It's called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the interpretation, uh, the proper interpretation, the methodologies, and so on. And uh, one of the most important principles of biblical interpretation is that you must always let Scripture interpret itself. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. You'll notice on the little green insert in your bulletin and the sermon notes that that's one of the things that we want to begin with is uh, the principle of in Scripture interpreting Scripture. So right within a text, like the text that we just read, in its context, you will find much of what needs to be understood about a passage. But you'll miss something if you don't go a little further and a little deeper. And so also we uh, take Mark 6 for an example our understanding will grow if we look at other parallel passages that are in the Bible. And when we read the Gospels, we know that we don't just have one perspective of the life and ministry of Jesus. We have four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in fact, if you bought the binder um, of the sermon notes that Doug had prepared for us, you'll notice that in that uh, binder each week is what's called a parallel, a harmony of the Gospels. And it is a parallel of of the whole story of Jesus according to the four different views. And it's kind of harmonized as we go. So as a result of doing that, and if you go online to our webpage and look at sermon-based studies and drop that down, you'll see the same harmony of the Gospels there. And the, the value of that is that we get the broader, fuller picture of all the details that one gospel maybe doesn't include. For example, we wouldn't know, for example, that the five loaves and the two fish that are spoken of in this passage uh, come from a little boy. I mean, in John's gospel, chapter 6, we read that it was a little boy that gave his lunch up that day for Jesus to multiply and feed the multitude. Uh, We wouldn't know, for example, that the very instance that we're talking about here is the same instance when Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water to Jesus. Because Matthew's account in chapter 14 gives us that little detail. So they don't all include the same details, but we get a broader, fuller understanding as we look at the whole story from all perspectives. But if we want to go deeper still, then more than just what the New Testament might give us, we need to turn into the pages of the Old Testament. And uh, if you're well-read in the Old Testament, you will find many references and images that are popping out at you in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels as you read it. And um, the Gospel writers who were very well-versed in the Old Testament saw Jesus as the fulfillment of so much that has its roots and origin in the Old Testament. And so we have a richer, fuller understanding if we have the depth of Scripture uh, in the Old Testament. And that leads to our second important uh, hermeneutical principle, and that is 
that the old is in the new revealed and the new is in the old concealed. Okay? So, in other words, the old is in the new revealed. The Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. And the new is in the old, but it's concealed still in the old because Christ and the new kingdom has not yet come. And if you're a student of Scripture, you'll see that. You'll, you'll come across passages of Scripture if you're versed in the Old Testament. You'll be reading along in the New Testament, and you'll say, gee, something, this, this reminds me of something. And you'll go back to the Old Testament. It reminds you of someone, and you'll go back to the Old Testament. And so to cut to the chase, I want to suggest to you this morning that if we're going to get an understanding of this Scripture as Mark intended, because Mark was very well versed, in the Old Testament, then we need to understand a couple of things. Number one, we need to get a grip on the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. And number two, we need to understand more about Moses, who is the leader of Israel in the book of Exodus. There are many images from Exodus found in this passage. Let's take a look at the context again in Mark chapter 6. In verse 30, we read that the, the disciples had just come back from their first little missionary trip. Jesus sends them out. They go out and they preach and they do things in his name. They come back and they give a report to Jesus. And um, Jesus sees that they're tired and that there's no time for rest because the crowds are just around them all the time. And so Jesus says uh, in verses 30 and 31, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Now before we rush on, just let's stop for a moment. The application of that is, is in your face. <laughs> it's not... It's not hidden. The application for that verse is, when was the last time you got alone with Jesus by yourself and got some rest? Okay? Just simply put, just when was the last time you just took your agenda and put other things aside and you gave your soul a chance to catch up to your body? Just you alone with Jesus. If the disciples needed that, we, 2,000 years removed, need it all the more to get in touch with the Savior that we worship. And so that is a very important lesson. There are three powerful images in this passage that I would like to bring out, and they come from their origin in the Old Testament, and they're in the sermon title this morning. And the first one is the Good Shepherd. The Gospels are quite clear that by this time in Jesus' ministry, he is popular. He is gaining popularity. He is healing people and and uh, casting out evil spirits of people's lives. And, and he is becoming a very popular figure. And so he many times tries to get alone with the disciples. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark alone, 20 times Jesus tries to get alone with the 12 because he's discipling them. He's getting them ready for ministry. And in verse 33, they're on a, on a boat going across the lake to a solitary place, we're told, a retreat center. And on their way, um, the, the, the crowds that are following Jesus kind of get his patterns, his hangout places. They know where he's going, and so they rush around the lake and they beat him there. Okay? Now remember, the Sea of Galilee is only 13 miles by 8 miles in, in size. It's not that big. And they had been tracking Jesus. They know where he's going. So some of the crowd is able to get there ahead of him. And so there they are on this retreat going up to the shoreline. And there's a massive crowd waiting on the shoreline for Jesus. And you can be sure that the disciples were not excited when they saw Jesus' response of compassion and when he began to teach them, they were hoping for something different. They were hoping for some quiet time with Jesus alone. 
And I imagine you and I can relate to this. You know, you've carved out some solitude. You're getting some R&R. You've got it all planned, and then something invades that privacy, that solitude, that serenity. It's hard to fight for that. And so this spiritual retreat turns into a day of teaching. The scene of the feeding of the 5,000 is very reminiscent of Moses and Egypt, and the Exodus, I should say. There are many points of reference, and I'm going to go through a few of them quickly, and I think that you'd have to do a, a more thorough study by yourself to see more of them. But let me begin by saying that Moses is introduced to us in Exodus as a man who was a, a shepherd. We know that he grew up in Pharaoh's court, but when we find him on the backside of the desert, he is caring, for 40 years, he is caring for his father-in-law Jethro's sheep. He is a shepherd, and he is in a remote wilderness wasteland place. And in the next 40 years of his life, we are told in Exodus that he is in that same wilderness, but now he has people that he is shepherding. He has taken the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and now he is wandering in the wasteland looking for the promised land that God has said they would enter. The word is the same word, Eremon, which is used of this desolate place, a wasteland, an uninhabited place. That's where Jesus is teaching this group of people. That's where he is shepherding them. And just as Moses was God's instrument to instruct and protect and provide for Israel, Jesus is God's instrument to instruct and protect and provide for this group of people that are on the side hills of, of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus sees this crowd in Mark 6, and he says that they're a shepherdless people. They're a shepherdless people. What an indictment that is on the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish leaders. That's an indictment on them. They're a shepherdless people. And... Um, Jesus sees them as that. And in verses 39 and 40, it's, it's noteworthy that, that Mark mentions there's green grass there. Why is that so important? That's because he's trying to make reference to the, 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 the shepherding of Israel in the wilderness, this shepherding imagery. He also mentions that they're organized in groups of hundreds and fifties. Why is that so important, Mark? It's because Jesus is also fulfilling this idea of Moses who organized the encampment of, of Israel in the wilderness in hundreds and fifties. And so, again, he's drawing out this imagery that Jesus is the one who is the good shepherd just as Israel was, was pastored and shepherded in the, in the wilderness. Now Jesus is pastoring and shepherding this Jewish people in their wilderness. And so... A fulfillment. Mark is quoting actually from the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 27, the prophetic prayer of Moses when he said, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in so the Lord's people, verbatim, the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Mark is quoting Numbers 27, Moses' words when he says that Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Mark is fulfilling this. He's making reference. So that's the first imagery. Very powerful. Jesus is the good shepherd. Secondly, Jesus is the bread of life. In addition to Jesus being this shepherd, he is the one who provides the bread in the wilderness. And this is reminiscent, of course, of the manna that is provided for Israel when they are under Moses' leadership in the wilderness. And notice that they were not allowed to hoard. You remember the story in Exodus uh, chapter 16? 
the Israelites every morning would go out and they'd gather like, like frost uh, or like dew. They would gather uh, this wafer-like bread. And the word manna in Hebrew means what is it because they didn't know what it was. And they would go out and they'd gather this every morning. And some tried to gather and store it for the next day, but it would turn rotten and have maggots in it. And they couldn't hoard for the next day. Similarly, in this passage, Jesus says to his twelve, after everybody has been fed, Jesus does not let anybody put it in their purses for the next day. He says to the disciples, gather it up. And they gather twelve baskets. You say, well, why are there twelve baskets left over? Because there are twelve disciples. They've just been on a mission trip. They're hungry. They're on retreat. And he's about to send them off on another little excursion. And he packs a lunch for them. You see, again, there's reminiscent here of Jesus, the shepherd, caring for his people, giving them the bread of life. And so in this passage, again, John is the one in, in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John who extends the story further. Incidentally, this bread and fish are pictures in Exodus 16 of the, of the manna and the quail that God provided. These are, these are direct references And just as Mark tells us that everyone was satisfied, so also we read in Exodus 16 that all the Israelites, uh, all the people in that hillside were satisfied and they were not allowed to keep anything. If we go deeper still, we go to John's Gospel, chapter 6. And if you go further into chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, John follows the story to the next day. And it says in chapter 6, verse 22, that the crowd goes in search of Jesus the next day. And when they find him, he says to them this, in chapter 6, uh, 26 of John, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Jesus is saying to this crowd, you are just seeking me out because you got your physical appetites met. And I'm telling you, I am the one who came down from heaven. I'm the bread of heaven. I'm the manna from heaven. And and, and I'm asking you to seek me for the spiritual food that I can give you. What a word this is for our world today. What a message our world today needs to hear. Who Who is obsessive about seeking out every physical appetite that they have going. That's what our world is giving themselves to. Yesterday, as I was at Mission Fest as well, and I heard various speakers, and the focus was on Europe, of course. Europe, who is, who is a, a, a continent further down the, the track of godlessness, where history of Christianity is now ancient and old, and almost part of their ancient culture. But what a place where one of the uh, represent, rep- presenters yesterday said that in our world today and in Europe, for example, human rights are being derived from where? From human desires. Human desires now, appetites, are dictating human rights. That's not what forefathers put human rights in place for, that we would just get all of our appetites met. But that's what's happening. And so we see uh, the need, more than ever, we see the need For people to know Jesus, the bread of life, the one who can feed them spiritually. And we read on in this passage that the crowd that seeks John, or Jesus in John 6, who also are well-versed in their Old Testament, they make the connection. They say to Jesus, our forefathers ate manna in the desert. 
He gave them bread from heaven. And Jesus responds and says, I am the bread from heaven. He who feeds on me will never go hungry. And so again, we see that the scripture is powerfully making an imagery of Old Testament significance present. The third image that I want to present to you is what we've just sung about just before, prior to the message is the great I am. And, and some of you, as you sang that, you're wondering, well, what is that, the great I am? And uh, this passage begins to, to point to that. So the third powerful image of Jesus is the great I am. In Mark 6.45, we read that after the miraculous meal at, that fed thousands of people, Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and cross over to Bethsaida. And they have their lunches packed now, right? And so they're going over to, to Bethsaida, and Jesus is alone with the crowd now. And it says in the Scripture that Jesus dismisses the crowd, and then he goes up onto the mountain to pray. That's all that, that uh, Mark tells us. Jesus went up to the mountain to pray. And again, we, we've got to look and see, we've got to see the imagery of Moses going up on the mountain, okay? We've got to see what Mark sees. Mark sees Moses going up on the mountain in Exodus 19 where he has this intimacy with the Father, with God, the Almighty One. And, and he's up there in this time of prayer and intimacy, getting instructions from God, getting the Ten Commandments. In chapter 33 and 34, it reaches this, this climax of intimacy where God says, I will show you my glory. It's incredible. And, and Moses comes down, and he's, he's in the mountain so long, and the glory of God is upon him. He has to wear a veil ahead of his face because there's glowing taking place. And he goes into the tent of meeting and he visits with God there. He comes out. He has to wear a veil over his face. It says, in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, 10, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, we know that, that Moses wrote most of the first five books of, of the Bible, the Old Testament, but he certainly didn't write the end because he's talking about his death. Somebody penned the last words of Deuteronomy and they said, never has there been a prophet like Moses in Israel that the Lord knew face to face? See, there's never been someone like that. And here Mark says, Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray. What I'm, what I'm saying to you today is that the reason that Mark could only say in simple language, Jesus went up to pray, and that's the end of that description of that experience, is because no human being was there between God the Father and God the Son enjoying the glorious relationship that they had. And the closest thing that we have in all the Bible that would describe what Jesus experienced time and time again during his earthly ministry when he went up in fellowship with the Father in prayer on a mountain somewhere in a solid place of solitude is Moses when he was alone with God and the glory of God was upon him. And so we read in this passage of Scripture that Jesus goes up and, and he's praying. In verse 47, when evening had come, Jesus is alone on land and the disciples are out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And he can see them. He can see them from a distance. I'm not sure why or how, but he sees them, it says. And we're led to believe, according to the language of Mark, that they're straining at the oars. And the language is, is given in such a way that they're straining at the oars, but they're getting nowhere. Have you ever had that experience on a canoe trip? Pat and I have, I know. 
trying to cross some big water, trying to get as close to the shore, but the wind and the waves are hitting us, and you, you look to the side, and you see the land, and you look over five minutes later, and you see the same land, and you're straining at it, and you're not moving forward. That's what's happening here. They're straining at the oars, and they're getting nowhere. Can I just pause for a moment and ask you a very, very penetrating question? Who sent them into the boats to Bethsaida? Jesus. And in chapter 4, when they had their last terror, terror experience on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus calmed the waters for them, what was their conclusion? They said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Now the question I'm asking you is why is the wind against them? If Jesus is the one who is the master of the wind and the waves and he sent them into the boats across to Bethsaida, why is the wind not at their backs? Why is the wind against them? We're going to come back to that later. I think there's a powerful lesson in that. Verse 48 says that about the fourth watch of the night, that's between 3 and 6 a.m., so it's very, very late into the morning. Jesus goes out to them, and he's walking on the water. Jesus is walking across the water. Now, it's interesting, as I read various books and commentaries on this, it's, it's interesting how many times try, people try to explain how he did that. I didn't get hearing the Canadian version that it was frozen. You know, I didn't hear that part. But, but there were so many ideas of how Jesus could do this, walk on the water. It's almost as though, you know, you saw Jesus Christ Superstar and Herod in Jesus Christ Superstar, of course, is mocking Jesus, does not believe in Jesus. And in that production, it shows him and his, his entourage around him. And they're mocking Jesus. Why don't you walk across my pool, Jesus, you know? But, but the fact is that Jesus just did this. You know, he just suspended whatever laws are in place that don't let us do it, and he just did it. I mean, if you open uh, your understanding to the fact that, that God is the creator of everything, and he can do what he wants with bread and fish, and he can multiply it to feed thousands of people, and he can do what he wants to the wind and the waves in the snap of a finger, and he can do what he wants with water that can be like a, like a concrete... Uh, slab. I mean, we don't need to struggle with this. You, if you're open your understanding to the fact that there's a God that has supernatural power, is the creator and redeemer. So I did not stumble over this. And Jesus in this passage of scripture is uh, reminiscent of Exodus 14 where Moses leads through the Red Sea the children of Israel again. And this time they are, they are scared. They see, they think he's a ghost. There was ancient belief that, that evil spirits were in the, in the, lurked in, beneath the surface of the seas. And so they believed that an evil spirit had come up and it was a ghost. And Jesus, seeing their terror, says, Oh, whoa, whoa, take courage. It is I, don't be afraid. Verse 50 in Mark 6 is a very powerful passage. In fact, it does not come through in our English translations. But literally what Jesus says is this. Take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. And the I am in this 
What Jesus speaks in Aramaic in the gospel accounts is written in the Greek emphatic with egoimi, which is, which is actually a to-be verb, okay? The to-be verb, imi, and the emphatic pronoun, personal pronoun, ego. So it's saying, I, I am. That's what he's saying. And this, this I am statement is so significant because it is reminiscent of the name for God that was given to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 when God calls Moses and he says, I want you to go to my people in, in Egypt and I want you to deliver them. And Moses says, well, who am I to tell them has sent me? And God says to him, I am has sent you. Tell them that I am who I am and tell them that's my name. And so God, Moses goes to Israel and he says, I am has sent me. You see, you see, the point of that name, I think, is that he is the self-existent one. He never had a beginning. He never will have an end. He has no point of reference for us. We cannot say, point to something and say, well, that's like God, because there's nothing that's like God. God is. I am who I am. And theologians down through the ages have tried to understand this. The Greeks have the, the word tetragrammaton. It's a, it literally means four letters because in Hebrew, this name, which was unpronounceable by any Jewish person in Hebrew, has only four consonants. There's no vowels. And so the YHWH, which is the Latinized version of that, is given some vowels. And so we say Yahweh. Or other people have made, given it vows and they say, this is Jehovah. The fact is, it doesn't matter what it is. It's God's name. It's, I, it's, it's the self-existent one. He defies fully understanding and knowing. But that's who sent Moses. And Jesus is saying, take courage. I am. John is the one who wants to unpack the deity of Christ more than any of them. And he goes into various ego I me, I am statements. We know that these I am statements are heretical and uh, according to the ears of the Jews because uh, on various occasions they want to kill him. In Mark chapter 14, verse 62, Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin. The high priest is interrogating him, and he is saying, he is saying to Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus responds. He says, I am. But he uses the construct in such a way that when Caiaphas, the high priest, hears it, he tears his robes, which is something a priest would never do unless he has heard blasphemy. Another time in John chapter 8 when, when uh, he is being, Jesus is being persecuted and criticized and so on, he said to the crowd, before Abraham was, I am. And what did they do in response? If, if this wasn't a, a claim to deity, do you think people would pick up stones and try to kill him on the spot? No. He was claiming to be God, the eternal God. That's who the historical Jesus is. He's the eternal God. Now, I, don't want you, I, I want you to know that there are other times when the emphatic I am is used by other people. For example, in John chapter 9, the blind man that is healed by Jesus. The Pharisees are after him and they're trying to disprove his testimony because it has too much weight ahead of other people. And so they say, 
Tell us the truth. Who are you? What are you doing? And he says, I am the man that Jesus healed. So I'm not suggesting that I am. A goimi is only used by Jesus. It's used by others, but never to claim deity like Jesus did. John has the famous seven I am sayings. When, when a goimi is used, he says, I am the vine. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am God, he says. And so he says to each one of us as well, I am. As we transition in a moment to gather around this table that's set before us and it has emblems on it of bread and cup, I just want us to go back to the Sea of Galilee just for a moment. And I want us to think about the words, take courage, I am, don't be afraid. I believe that just as much as those were relevant for the disciples in their point of crisis, they are relevant for you and I today. Okay? Jesus comes to us. He sees us. He comes to us. He walks into our world. He sees us and we're, we're terrified and we're, we're struggling he sees us in the middle of our night when the winds of circumstance and crisis are against us, when we are straining at the oars of our life circumstance and getting nowhere. He sees us. He is the living one, the eternal self-existent one. He sees the plight that you and I are in. He comes to us and he says to us, take courage, I am. Don't be afraid. Whatever that means for you, you need to receive that. That's who Jesus is for you. And in Matthew's account in chapter 14, it says that when Jesus had gotten into the boat, the winds died down, and it says that they worshipped him. They worshipped him. From absolute terror, fear, to ghost to worshiping the Son of God. And guess what they said on their knees in that boat, on that calm sea of Galilee? Guess what they said? It says in Matthew 14, 32, they said, truly, you are the Son of God. Another key question. Would they have concluded that without that experience? And put it home more to you, would you conclude anything deeper about Jesus Christ if it were not for some of the awful experiences that he leads you through? Let's pray. Mighty God, our Savior, we come to you and Lord, we we know that we're on holy ground when we talk about you, Jesus. We are, we are on tiptoe trying to look over the balcony into the incredible mysteries of your kingdom. And Lord God, we, we have just seen a, a glimpse of you more, Jesus, and of your worth, of your glory, of your magnitude, of your eternality. And oh God, we pray that today we would 
bow the knee and humble ourselves and acknowledge you for who you are. And even now as we gather around your table, Lord, meet with us. Jesus, as we receive the, the bread of life and the fruit of the vine, help us to remember you, O oh Jesus, are the true vine and you are the bread of life. In Jesus' name we pray.